You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a music discovery podcast where every episode I'll dive deep into the creative minds of your new favorite songwriters, band leaders, and sonic explorers who, like me, have dedicated their lives to traveling the world, telling their strange stories to anyone who'll listen. My name is Zach Lupiton. Let's go. This week on the show, I want to do things a little bit differently. I want you to listen to the world around you right now. What do you hear? Where do you exist in the world right now? Where do you exist in history right now? Maybe this feels a little ridiculous with the lawnmowers going back and forth outside and the pickup trucks going in and out of my driveway right now, but I want to try to get a little mystical with you guys. I want you to close your eyes right now, wherever you are. Put down your phone, let your hands and your face and your eyes totally relax. Unless you're driving, but no one really drives anywhere right now. I want you to close your eyes and take a deep breath. And I want you to be totally, completely present. And let the beat and the rhythm of the music surround you, fill you. And I want you to let the sounds that make up your little pandemic microcosm filter in and out of your consciousness, like an orchestra that's playing just for you. The bird song, the highway rumble, the airplane hum, the sounds of kids biking by and laughing about a future that in their innocent eyes is still so bright. And I want you to see through those eyes of when you were a small and protected and safe little person. The hope and the excitement that you can only have as a small being in a big, beautiful world. Because that feeling... That mystical, things are still made of pure magic feeling. That's what I get when I listen to Chloe and Leah Smith, the Dynamo sisters who make up Rising Appalachia, who for the last decade and a half have forged their own more hopeful alternate universe version of the music industry. Indeed, Chloe and Leah have taken their banjos and fiddles and guitars straight from their Georgia childhood to places that maybe those instruments have never been, to the wilds of southern Mexico, to the green hills of Bulgaria, to the clattering trains of India, and the farming islands of British Columbia. And as they've grown into their sound, their audience has grown exponentially with them. Many bands and songwriters claim to walk the walk when it comes to infusing their music and lyrics with social justice-leading themes and supporting these causes in real life. But for Leia and Chloe, the cause is the main thing that matters. Writing music and performing live are only one part of their creative vision, which includes on-the-ground advocating for racial justice, fundraising and protesting for environmental renewal and respect, and since their very first album, they've never stopped pushing for indigenous rights and awareness of ancient customs, highlighted in fan-favorite songs like Medicine, which you'll hear a little bit later in this episode. I'll tell you right now, I'm not usually into bands that go right to the message before their music even starts. And yet, there's something about what Leia and Chloe Smith do where they can conjure an ancient wisdom and bring us on a mystical journey throughout their records that makes me think twice about my judgment and listen a little deeper. There's something about the gentle intertwining of their voices that bring me back to a moment when I was a kid, when things were hopeful and innocent. And I could see myself watercolors all over my hands on the front lawn painting tarot cards with my mom and talking to trees like they were real. And maybe they are. Maybe trees are trying to tell us something. Maybe we should listen. Sometimes you have to let your mind go places that it doesn't usually go. And I can do that listening to this music. 
I was able to catch up with Chloe uh, for this cross-country conversation a few weeks ago. Uh, Leia, her sister, is marooned in Costa Rica since the world is shut down in March and continues to work from there, while Chloe is uh, holed up in the Black Mountains outside Asheville. Their newest single is called Pulse. They teamed up with a band called Dirt Wire to make it happen. It's beautiful. It's actually playing underneath my talking right now, and we'll get to that in a second. My hope is one day when this whole thing blows over, maybe Rising Appalachia and Dust Bowl Revival, my band, can get together and write a song about how much we've grown. Or not, during this forced slowdown. And maybe we all needed this. The slowdown, I mean. To really listen to the birds, to lay in the sand and stare at the clouds, writing their cosmic messages to us, which we never read anymore. Wherever you are right now, I'm glad you exist. I'm glad we can share this music together. These sisters have a song called Make Magic on their newest record, Ley Lines, and I'm trying to take that to heart these days. I may never be the biggest star or the best person to all my friends or the coolest podcaster that you know, but I can try to be kind and make a little more magic than existed before. Anyway, let's sit back and enjoy Rising Appalachia. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Chloe Smith, one part of the band Rising Appalachia, and um, it's a band that I run and built with my sister Leah, and we have a six-piece band, um, and I play banjo and fiddle and guitar, and and I write a bunch of our songs. Yeah, it's it's really amazing the, the body of work that you guys have put together um, since around, what was it, 2005 was your first record yeah and, and you yeah. sort of started doing music almost accidentally right you guys recorded this uh first record as just a gift to your friends and family and then it kind of convinced you that maybe this was something that could happen for real exactly uh we grew up in a musical family our mom and dad played for contra dances in and around the south we're from atlanta um, but they were just big in the old-time music community, and so we grew up around music, but we didn't necessarily play those instruments until we were a bit older. And yeah, we wanted to just record some of the songs that we had learned and were starting to learn on our instruments and also things that we had learned from our parents and give it to our community as, as a gift, as Christmas presents. And then... Uh, yeah, then we got invited to play in front of people, real live people, and, you know, one thing led to another. It was very organic growth, but um, we never had that moment that I think some bands have where you're like, I'm going to start a band, and this is what I want to do. Uh, it looked a lot different for us. Growing up, what did you think as a kid that you really wanted to do? I wanted to be a pilot uh, for a while. Awesome. My mother was a flight attendant, and I was pretty into being a pilot. Are there lady pilots, like on a 
national scale now? We were wondering that flying uh, back when you could still fly places. We are like, <laughs> when was the last time, if ever, you saw a woman up in the cockpit? Like, it's still such a sausage fest up there. Totally. <laughs> yeah, you don't see them too often, and, you know, it's mostly all flight attendants, which was why I wanted to do it, you know, uh, just to kind of get into that work and obviously fly a plane. But, yeah, I mean, I could probably count on one hand, maybe two, the amount of women pilots I've seen. You know, it's not too late, you know. There's a lot of time. It's not too late. It's a lot of time. <laughs> Now's we not have, the time. <laughs> since we have nothing else to do but stay at home, maybe, you know, there's a local flight school you can sneak away to right now. Yeah, that's very true. There's uh, in Chattanooga, which is not too far from where I am, is the world's most famous hang gliding school. So I might go that route. Oh, wow. There's a There's a great place in... San Diego on those cliffs kind of I think kind of towards La Jolla uh, and my grandparents used to take me to this place it was a hang gliding port where you would jump off this cliff but then you could also get like burgers and like beer like before you went or after like there was a little <laughs> cafe as you watched these people just jump off the cliff all day and it was like my favorite place yep. to go when I would visit them when I was a kid that sounds like a fun family activity Let's go back to that first uh, first record, Leia and Chloe, 2006, I believe it came out. I think a, a good place to start uh, for me with your music is Camp Meeting on the 4th of July. Yeah. And it kind of s- starts with this really, you know, rustic back and forth of the banjo and the fiddle, and it symbolizes, I think, a lot of this um, string band music that you guys constantly are weaving in and out of your your music and your storytelling, even as you start to quote-unquote modernize a bit, bring in synthesizers and uh, all sorts of different uh, atmospherics, as it were. But I think this is a fun track for me that shows you guys starting out and, and really finding this traditional base that would lead you forward. Yeah, that um, that's an old tune that I learned from my mom. God, it's, it's so interesting that you bring that up because I, I haven't played that song in so long. Um, like I said earlier, our mom was a fiddle player, and so all those fiddle banjo tunes we mostly learned from her. We call her like the tune dictionary because she's one of these people who has like thousands of old time songs in her memory bank, and it's really amazing. And she's taught us quite a lot. Um, and like you said, with that first album, it was pretty much us playing traditional music. There weren't any originals on that first album. We were playing the songs that we grew up with and heard around our family home. And it was really me learning how to play the fiddle, like maybe a year before I recorded that album. We were just novices at those instruments. And um, and I think, you know, you can hear that that... Hopefully it's charming, but you can hear that we're sort of beginners on that first album. Uh, yeah, and then and then slowly but surely we got more into writing original songs. But the but the traditional mountain music is very much a, a backbone of 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 our like home base, home turf, um, and and it's really comforting to like have those songs in our head and to stray from them, but always have them as a as an influence and you know a lot of them are 
you think of them more as being jam songs, or at least I do. It's like, you, you know, you sit in a group of six people, banjos and fiddles and stand-up bass, and you could play a tune like that for an hour over and over and over again. And that's really what a lot of that music was made for, kind of front porch stuff and dance music and square dances. And, and yeah, you know, we're thankful. We're very thankful that our parents got really into that when they were young and then passed it, passed it on to us. forward this song uh, from your scale down record the next one 2007 the calculated footsteps rally and Spencer has that has like almost this yeah this combination of that drone that is so pervasive in mountain string band music that also is there in raga music Indian traditional music and I think it feels like a meditation is happening in that song um, yeah and we're sort of going in these cycles of rhythm that lulls you into this beautiful place. And I, I, I really loved listening to that song. Yeah, that one, I love that song as well. We learned that traditional Raleigh and Spencer tune from our godfather, Wit Kana, who was a great uh, harmonica blues musician in Georgia. But like you said, that was kind of when we started branching out of you know, we grew up on hip-hop. Leah and I traveled to India and South America. Um, we got really into the spoken word movement in the South, and you'll hear the poetry at the beginning of that song. And so we're just sort of weaving in, even to a traditional song, we sort of slowly start weaving in these other layers of what we were inspired by and finding finding the overlap, as there is so much overlap in, in music, period. Um, culturally, but also just the sounds, the different sounds that come out. I'm like obsessed with drone. <laughs> uh, it's just such, it's such a heartbeat and sort of weird dissonant harmonic thing that you can play with in music. And, you know, the blues and, and Indian classical music. And then we studied um, a little bit of Bulgarian singing. Uh, we traveled over there and did kind of an exchange with a village and you know they're so famous for having that vocal drone and it's so eerie and so powerful and uh, we started just learning more about you know the notage and the the musical history behind stacking those layers and yeah I mean it's a beautiful it's a beautiful compliment to us all. Sorry, <laughs> I'm muting. I'm muting myself because I'm trying to not have my neighbor's barking puppy get into the recording. <laughs> yeah, I figured technology. He's going to be in there. Um, tell me a little bit about that trip to Bulgaria. Um, yeah, well, I'm pretty horrible with dates, but it was probably around 2008. Um, 
We had a really good friend in Atlanta who was Bulgarian who had come over on a work visa and um, was friends of friends, and we, we became close. And um, he ended up going back to Bulgaria and had all, and just continually kept inviting us and saying that he would organize us a musical exchange just sort of on his own because he was passionate about it. And he would come to our, you know, Georgia fiddle jams and then uh, just wanted to expose his Bulgarian friends and communities to that sort of music and us to his traditional music of the mountains. So eventually we did it and we brought just three of us, my sister, myself, and our old drummer, Forrest, over and we did about a three-week Bulgarian tour. Um, And a lot of the time, about halfway through, you know, we'd play shows in different towns and villages and cities, and then halfway through we visited the Piran Mountains, um, and this famous group of singers called the Bisarov Singers, um, which they were kind of, they, if you ever heard the voices of Bulgaria, that was sort of an, they were a touring ensemble and got pretty well known for their recordings. Um, that was them. So we went and studied with one of them, Lubyanka, and she just brought us into her kitchen and, you know, poured us some cherry moonshine and slowly, painstakingly broke down a few of a few of their traditional songs for us to take our hand at learning. And of course, you know, we didn't speak the same language. We had a translator, but, um, you know, there's just a lot of laughing and, you know, the, the sort of common language of being weirdos in a small village. <laughs> you know, we had like piercings and tattoos and all of that stuff. And but it was just a beautiful, it was an amazing experience. I mean, the country is gorgeous, and we had a great time sharing our music to, to people, but that was the highlight, was just going to this really remote village that they actually were calling a, a dying village because no uh, young people were living there. All the young people had left, so it was all old people. But they held this song, and they held these traditions, and you know, in their opinion, nobody was interested in them, but we were so interested in in that style of singing. And um, yeah, it was beautiful. And we, we recorded one of those songs called Zave Dimea on one of our albums, which you can hear uh, and give credit to those Bisarov sisters who taught us. Which album is that on? <laughs> That's a great question. Somewhere. <laughs> we have like eight albums, I believe. So I. What's it called? I dropped the ball a little bit. It's called Zave Dimea. If you even just, it's Z A V E Y, I mean, that would pull it up. Yeah, it's on uh, Filthy Dirty South. Yeah. Though one would say that that song is about as far away from. <laughs> the music of the South is physically possible, and yet maybe those two things needed to be connected by you and you alone, you know? It's like a, a, a marriage that the universe needed to have happen. <laughs> right. How how has it been growing up in the South and 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 you're still based there now, right? In, in mm-hmm. North Carolina, you said. Yeah. How has it been growing up there and 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 seeing the changes in awareness that our country is going through right now? Because 
obviously, um, maybe unfairly so, the South and a lot of the people down there get the reputation of holding on to the past and these um, bad habits and, and bad traditions much tighter than the rest of the country. And is there, is there something that you've seen recently with the protests and, and the amazing um, confluence of activism that has come out of the George Floyd death? Have you seen a transformation happening around you? Um, well, I feel like there's twofold. There's a lot of ways to go about that question. I mean, we grew up, I grew up in Atlanta. I always say we because <laughs> Rising Appalachia is my sister and I, but sometimes people are like, who is this we that you keep talking about? So, yeah, it's, it's like we're we. not the same person, but we are very similar. Um, anyway, we slash I grew up in Atlanta, and so Atlanta is a real melting pot. I mean, it's it's a place of, like, deep diversity and, and a historical civil rights movement. And, you know, it's a really different city than the rest of the South, to be totally honest. Um, yeah, Chocolate and city. I grew up in, like, mostly African-American school systems. And, and so my perception, and in, like, the Atlanta urban hip-hop thing, and that was my reality, uh, you know, as a white woman until I was 18. Um, I didn't, I mean, I traveled around the South, obviously, for the fiddle stuff that my mom was into, which was quite different. But my sort of social context growing up was really diverse. And so still living in the South and living in North Carolina now, um, I mean, there's just so many layers to this place. We also lived in New Orleans for seven years after the storm. And there's such a wealth of diversity and music and culture in this region in a in a way that I don't really necessarily witness in other places, although I haven't lived in other places as long. So there's that. There's the backbone of like blues and music and Zydeco and Cajun dancing and, you know, all that stuff, which I love and we cling to very much as artists of like that being our South. Um, but then, of course, you know, there's there's a lot there's a lot of other things going on. So, I think part of staying in the South for us uh, has been working towards building a better South, um, and that's always been our work with Rising Appalachia. Even the name Rising Appalachia, it's like we wanted to kind of take this journey of, you know, the Appalachian Mountains and then rising up out of it with our music and our activism and all of these things and. And the South does need that, and, and we all need to take part of that in our own neighborhoods. But we're, we're pretty committed to, you know, being born Southerners and staying here to build and network. And there's a lot of incredible stuff going on, of course, that doesn't get attention or news. There's amazing, you know, organizations and nonprofits and educational things. There's tons of permaculture and herbalism uh, Outside of I live outside of Asheville, but in this town, there's a wealth of, um, you know, that sort of knowledge and information, and so I I tend towards the eternal optimist side of things, but I also recognize that there's a long there's a long road to go. So I hope that this region can can remedy itself and stand for all the amazing, beautiful things that it has to offer. Totally. I mean, you know, there was a, 
a show we played um, with my band Dust Bowl Revival before the whole mayhem shut down all tours um, in Bristol, Virginia, um, which for some reason has become maybe our one of our favorite places to play in the country. They've just been so kind to us, and that community that has the Bristol Rhythm and Roots reunion has just given us so much love through the years uh, and this yeah, and, the, they're great. and the south is is honestly a lot of the places we play outside the blue dots have not been as <laughs> open-minded to our weird brass band string band mashup thing um but there was a moment where uh we were going in to play our new record at the paramount theater biggest place we've ever played down there really and there's a gun control song about the Parkland, Florida kids on our new record. And I, you know, definitely saw a bunch of Confederate flags and Trump posters and stuff riding into town when you go past the Bristol Motor Speedway and all that. And I was like, I, don't, I just don't know. Like, should we hold this back tonight? Like, should we keep the, like, the good vibes flowing? You know, it's always like, do you speak up? and sort of, you know, really say what's important to you with the risk that your audience turns away from you or feels like they're being preached at, you know? And th yeah. this guy at the bar before the show, I asked him about it, um, and he was really wise. He was, he was like this local guy. He's like, look, I have four AK-47s, and I like to shoot them off on my farm, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to agree with you on this on this stance, but I think if you come out full force with your passion, you know, in front and not hiding and not hiding it, the people will respect you for being passionate and saying what's on your mind, you know? Yeah. And I never... So did you play it? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and we happen? got a standing ovation for it. Oh, good. You know? I mean, I was obviously way in my head about it, but I think, like you said, there's people like you who are remaking what I think people think the South is, you know? Oh, yeah, for certain. And, I mean, we all live beyond the stereotypes, <laughs> you know? I mean, the stereotypes are real for a reason. I mean, they've, they've gotten there for a reason, but there's, there's a lot of nuance uh, in our country, and I think the sort of us versus them, I mean, it's it's just a slippery slope. So we, you know, that happened to us as well for the first, I would, I would say, handful of years that we played music, we had people leave our shows. Not tons, but a handful or a few every show because we played. Uh, it was actually less about the music and more about what we would say in between songs. We've always been very uh, chatty in between songs and also political and just spoke our minds and weren't really afraid to do so. And people would leave and it felt sad and kind of like you were doing a disservice to the show to a certain extent. But after a while, you know, we wanted to just cultivate the sort of audience that knew who we were and what we stood for. And and even if they didn't believe with us, believe us, which is fine, you know. Uh, that they would stay in a room and like witness the space. So I've always tried to encourage artists to not be afraid of that, you know, because people are looking for folks who speak their truth and 
like you said, aren't like hiding behind something or afraid to just be authentic on stage. Yeah, I think I think you gotta fully be the person that you want to be in front of strangers, you know. Mm-hmm. And totally. you know, you guys, you gals rather, have been more upfront with your activism and your, uh, you know, passion for the natural world and really integrating that into your music more than most people I've ever seen. Um, and obviously you got to play with probably one of your heroes, Ani DeFranco and your newest record Ley Lines. And, um, mm-hmm. what was it like collaborating with her? Yeah, she's incredible. Um, I, I just admire her so much for her lyricism and I have since I was a young woman. And that was the way I explain it is just a long uh, <laughs> harvest from a seed of an idea planted, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> Which sometimes things come to fruition really quickly and sometimes they take darn near forever to come through. And Leah and I had, you know, left her packages at all her shows and, you know, tried to write her managers and letters and, you know, just as obviously first as fans, but then slowly as folk musicians, you know, in the scene. And none of it worked. And I don't even know if she ever got any of it, which is fine. And then uh, we played a festival in North Carolina here called the Lee Festival, and we were both performers and we shared a, a crew member. Um, a sound engineer and so we just we ended up meeting and it was fine and lovely and we sang on her set just some harmony and then then you know because we had a mutual friend and obviously because we had met in person which I totally respect you know needing to feel someone's energy out before you collaborate Uh, then we just asked her if she would record on that song and the song it was just perfect for her it's about the Charlottesville riots that went down the sort of the race nightmare that happened in that town and um it that song reminded us so much of her and she has a really unique way of harmonizing and peppering her voice into things so we just we left space when we recorded it not totally sure if she would if she would record or not but we just kind of left it open and she ended up saying yes and we weren't in the studio together unfortunately that would have been fun but she recorded it and sent it over and I mean she's just a hero and an icon for the whole world especially for the feminist movement and for for female singers and my sister and I have also spearheaded our entire music industry (laughs) uh, business ourselves and I respect her so much for that you know in a scene as I'm sure you're well aware of of uh, your power getting stripped from you if you're not careful. Um, she was a big icon for us also just as far as how we ran our business, you know? Yeah, I mean, she sort of was one of the first people, I think, that I can think of that had their own record label and, and really was championing artists that she loved, um, you know, Babeland. Yeah. And I remember I remember seeing girls in my high school having those Babeland patches, sure. like on their backpacks. Yeah. Like it was like a badge of like, we know what's up. Totally. <laughs> I mean, it's a bunch of badasses, really. That song you did with her, uh, Speak Out, there's this, uh, you know, this <laughs> this line, a couple lines that feel uh, 
very prescient to what's happening right now. And obviously you recorded it probably a year or so before all these protests and everything started happening. But there's these this moment where you say, you know, who are you? What have you become? And I don't want your hate speech, your supremacy. And it's the, it's yeah. like naming it in the song, which, again, a lot of people think won't do openly. I wouldn't do that, yeah. probably. Um, and was there a point when you started writing songs together with your sister that you agreed, like, we're going to put this into the public? Or was it always sort of like, we have to do this? With that song or just songwriting? I would say, general? you know, the idea that we're going to openly state the injustices in front of us and not be afraid to cloak them in allegory or metaphor. Right. Um, I mean, we've been doing that since the beginning. My sister has this epic song poem that she wrote called Spirit's Cradle that's all about the prison industrial complex, um, which is also really strangely, and and police brutality, um, poignant to the times. And uh, we just, I mean, we just let whatever needs to come out, come out, to be totally honest, as songwriters. Like, a lot of our songs aren't political, necessarily. And then the ones that are, if they feel like they need to come out, which speak out, I wrote on a plane ride right after Charlottesville happened in about an hour on, like, a napkin on the plane because I was so pissed off about what had happened and I'm a southerner and I just you know I had to write about it and so when things like that happen we don't clamp it you know we don't block that flow it's like it just needs to come out and of course in the moment I'm like do I want to say the word supremacy in this song but for certain I wanted to say that word you know I mean that was that needed to be said and a lot of people now and then and you know in the future they need that song. I mean, sorry, that word specifically needs to be said. And so I don't think we're afraid to say it, but it comes with a lot of weight and baggage, you know, to be an activist, as any activist will say. Like, you have to stand behind your words and talk about it all the time and not shy away from uh, from the meaning behind it and, and talking about it. So, yeah, we're, we just... I don't know. I mean, I hate to sound simple, but like we just let certain things come if they need to be said. And then and then those are usually the fiercest songs that we write because they've come from a moment in our time, in our collective time that have felt very pressing. Who are you? What have you become? What have you done to this beautiful kingdom? I don't want your guns, I don't want your poisons I don't want your weapons and tools of mass distractions I don't want your red flags, don't want your baggage I don't want your hate speech, your supremacy How does the song... How does a song start for you? Is it a, a seed of a, of a phrase or an idea that you write on a notebook? Are you humming something to yourself? Like, how do they usually start? Um, usually with a riff, um, like a little piece of some sort of 
melody that I'm, I mean, I write a lot in motion, to be totally honest, when I'm walking or hiking or driving even. So I have tons of voice memos on my phone of just like a little piece of something that, uh, you know, Bobby McFerrin always says song catching, which I've liked, you know, the thought that there's music out there and sometimes it just comes through and you catch it. And uh, it can feel that way sometimes. So I'd say it starts with a little a little piece. And then if, if I give myself and my brain uh, enough creative time and energy, then it kind of comes to fruition. But, but you have to kind of discipline that side of it, if that makes sense. Like the creative spark comes from who knows where. And then the second phase is like putting the work in. What is the most awkward place where a song has come to you, like a flash of lightning? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, like sometimes, sometimes in the shower is like where stuff comes to me immediately, and you're like, "All right, I need like a like a dry erase board in here or something, <laughs> like like a waterproof recording like device of some sort." Right. Uh, yeah, the shower is nice. I'm not totally sure how to answer that question. I'd have to think on it. But I did dream a song riff the other day. And I, and I woke up and it was pitch dark. Uh, and, you know, my sweetheart was sleeping next to me. And I was just like, do I need to write this down right now, really? You know? Uh, yeah. Or, like, wake up and sing, you know, into my computer at, like, 4 in the morning. And I did, of course. But um, that was odd. That hasn't happened too much, to be totally honest. Have you had more vivid dreams since the COVID-19 shutdown and we're stuck at home? Yes. Because I have. Totally. Like, what is that? I don't know, but mine like are very technicolor. Record. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if someone's made some sort of theory about that. <laughs> I've had wild dreams. I'm a bit of a dreamer like I have sort of sagas go on, but they've been a handful since COVID hit. Maybe we just have more, yeah, more time and space to to remember them in the morning because we're not running off hustling. I mean, you know, most well, of us just kind of wake up and, like, hit the road, and that's when your your dream dissipates. Well, I think, yeah, for bands like ours that are used to being in a new town, you know, 100 days of the year or something, you know, and you're seeing all this stimuli flow into your brain... Uh, and that's suddenly eliminated and all you get basically is the square mile around your house and the grocery store or right. something for two and a half, three months. Um, it's like your brain is making up for the gap. And, 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 <laughs> the and lack of entertainment. It's <laughs> like creating these sagas, like you were saying. Is there a, a dream that you remembered recently that you wrote down? Um, yeah, I had a dream that, um, I, like, a plane that I was on went out of business when I was on the flight, <laughs> and they, like, came on the announcement and, was, and said, we can't keep even flying this flight, like, we've ran out of money to continue this flight, so we're gonna go ahead and land in New York <laughs> and just let you guys off the plane. And then I was, and it was during COVID times, like the New York, the state of New York was, people were ill and, but tons, but like nobody was wearing masks, which was really interesting. And, 
And I was there with like a purse and no luggage trying to find my sister and my band and my partner and was kind of just going through these really interesting New York scenes of like some were inspiring and some were sort of despairing uh, post-apocalyptic type um, street scenes of people making food or yeah I don't know it was a trip and um, woke up and wrote that one down although it's not too far from reality I would say but it was very visceral and physical as a lot of dreams are you know I, I woke up kind of instantly and and was in my home here in the mountains and just like I think it took hours it felt like for my soul to kind of come back to reality from post-apocalyptic New York what was the last show that you guys played before everything happened um, the last show that we played is actually really sweet. Um, my sister and I were in Telluride for the winter, um, visiting some friends and we just organized a small little show outside of Telluride in a smaller town and, um, played in Akiva, which is like a round, uh, a roundhouse building and it was acoustic and there were about 70 people there which is not normal for us to get to do those sorts of things, but it's a great pleasure actually to just play instruments without all the wires and all the equipment. And, you know, everyone was sitting on cushions and it was just a really beautiful night of folk music. And um, that was our last show. That was our last show. And it was just the two of us. The full band had, you know, a show. We played a small tour in Florida and New Orleans in February. But uh, yeah, that little kind of round table one was our last one. And I think, to be totally honest, I'm sure you all are thinking about it. Um, we'll probably be allowed to play small shows again in the future. Less crowded rooms, maybe outdoor venues. And I think it's a good time for musicians to get creative about that. Of you know, We're not going to be able to maybe pack 1,000, 2,000 people in a venue, but how can we continue to share and do our work and it'll probably be less people in in these spaces um and aside from that being sad on the front end it, it can be really enjoyable so it's kind of interesting that that was our last show it was almost like preparing us for the future yeah speaking of post-apocalyptic new york we were the last show that played in new york city <laughs> before shut down apparently oh shit we played in Brooklyn on the 12th, like the night that they basically passed the resolution that everything had to get shut down. Wow. But our show made the cut because we had already, it was already about to happen, you know? Yeah. And definitely some people came, you know, and, and it was probably like a little bit weird and, and not as exciting as it should have been. Yeah. But I, I remember, you know, seeing some friends, you know, and we're, and we're at the bar and, and we're eating at this cool restaurant and, and everything is just packed, you know. Mm. And that was like the last time that that was like that. <laughs> you know? Like that moment in time was like we got this little like dragonfly in, in amber situation of, of New York and mm. almost like pre, you know there was like the time pre 9-11 you know yeah. where there's this sort of carefreeness to New York that 
maybe would never return in the same way. Yeah, you know? totally. I know. And I wonder, I wonder if it's going to be different when we go back, you know. Yeah. Even if there is a vaccine, I think there's going to be a skittishness to really being in that sweaty, close quarter yeah. with your fellow strangers. But who knows? I think yeah. humans are so naturally social as we keep seeing with people refusing to listen to <laughs> the health experts. Right. You know. Um, right. But, wow, that's you know, so interesting that that was y'all's last show. Yeah. And, and, and a couple of us did get COVID. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Our trombone player flew home like a couple of days later and straight up had the virus. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Um, and we were lucky in that, you know, obviously we're young and full of lung capacity. But, you know, that wasn't the case for some people. And mm. you wonder if people who came to your show, um, who knows? Like, like what happened to all those people? Yeah, right. Like how many of them got COVID <laughs> from there, from New there York? There was or a from guy. Wherever. There was a guy uh, who who was a super fan of a lot of like Americana music who um, did die after a company, and we were our we were his last show. Aww. It was it was heartbreaking. I I think he had probably gotten it maybe a little bit after that, but um, the last post on his Instagram and he would go to like 200 shows a year all over the country the last post was like a blurry picture of like me like shouting into the microphone you know on Instagram and then it was like and then the feed stopped wow yeah wow that's wild I know it was was like I was so like moved that Mm. he would venture out to see us on Mm. like this in this dangerous time and then he just he never that was the last show. Wow. If you, you could never only know. S- I know. I'm saying. It's, so it's like if, if you could see one show right <laughs> now of anyone alive and playing music right now, only one show before you were taken to the great beyond, who would it be? Someone who's alive or can I like go back in time? <laughs> All right. We'll do, we'll do one who's alive right now and one show from anywhere in history. It's kind of a toss-up between Kendrick Lamar, because I love him, and Willie Nelson, because I also love him, and I would like to see both of them. Okay, we'll say a combo uh, (laughs) double bill. Kendrick Nelson and Billie Holiday. Hmm, yeah. Although, hey, it's always hard to pick. I'm, like, such a universalist. I'm like, I would love to see so many people. But I would love to be in a smoky jazz club seeing Billie sing. That song on your uh, Leyline's record, Indigo Dance, where you mm-hmm. uh, let's uh, let's let let's let that plane fly over my head right now. <laughs> I felt like it was much more peaceful like an hour ago. Um, the song Indigo Dance uh, that you did with trumpet player Maurice Turner, it just has that feeling that maybe you've taken this futuristic world string band that you guys have and put it into a jazz club in the in the 40s Mm. like um and you guys kind of have this riff where you're flowing in and out of the different dance styles and and music that has moved you and i'm curious if it's possible 
and it's really hard to do out of context. Can you say the first verse and chorus of that as like a spoken word poem? I could try. <laughs> I try to remember it from memory, although we haven't played a show in forever. We spent seven years living in New Orleans, and so that street dance, second line, jazz, kind of spoken word. I mean, it's just, it's it's kind of all over the place, but it's that kind of everything goes, throw it all together um, song, and it's so fun to play live, and, and she and I swing dance on stage, and it's it's just like this playful celebration of, of people's different dance cultures and street dance and you know Maurice has recorded on all of our albums he's an old friend of ours from Mississippi and he's been on all of our albums one of our favorite trumpet players and god what does she say I think she says I gotta go <laughs> I gotta go yeah you really gotta know six steps on the floor and the body has the soul shake it easy shake it away but way down south, shake, shake the bass Turn it up, let it go But bring me on closer to my indigo Shake it east, shake it west But way down south, shake, shake the bass Turn it up, let it go But bring me on closer to my indigo It's fun, and then we shout out like Prince and Michael Jackson and square dancing and step dancing and buck dancing and tap dancing there's just like all these shout outs to to dance you know and on, on occasion we've had people in the audience that are like rad uh dancers of those styles that have thrown down and it's fun it's one of our more fun songs so sure do miss playing it it's like that bob dylan single was I can I contain multitudes where he he's just like shouting out like everyone he's ever seen or heard of it's <laughs> like Alicia Keys she's cool that is hilarious great great name for a song do you think that 20 years from now you're gonna be still playing on the road with your sister or do you think that in some utopia that you guys have created, um, your life will look different. I think our life will look different. And we were already on our way to building that life to look different and get up, getting off the road. Uh, we're not the sort of road-loving band, although we love performing. And, you know, there's, a, there's just like a middle ground between the two. We've had the sort of full-time tour schedule for about five years. And I think in 20 years, I, I would hope that I will be playing music with my sister in front of people and sharing that craft. Um, but I imagine it will look a lot different. And, and uh, yeah, who knows? We'll see. I mean, the entire world looks so different, so we'll see. But we, we probably will go back to our roots, I would imagine. You know, we played just the two of us, maybe a trio, and... Mostly acoustic and for small groups of people, and we got a lot of joy from that. So we might go back under the radar. <laughs> yeah, there's another earlier uh, album song, Pretty Little Foot, that I think, again, symbolizes what I've really fallen in love with your music, which is dipping your pen into these different uh, inkwells. You know, you have the the traditional banjo and fiddle uh, sort of 
dance happening, but also you're you're going into a trap beat, and and, mm-hmm. and there's like <laughs> almost like a Skrillex EDM like back beat happening where you feel like oh man are we going into the club right now and then yes and then that's what we want you to feel <laughs> and then you're bringing in trouble trouble in mind little grateful dead love you know it's like right. we we kind of have all of it in, in one little microcosm in that song yeah that's one of our favorite songs to play for sure yeah i mean that song we learned from our godfather once again you know great harmonica player in georgia and then our drummer, Biko, is just so good at this sort of, like, heart-centered thump. <laughs> he plays an instrument called a bara, which is a turned-over gourd. It just has, like, a really beautiful low-end thump. It's from Mali originally. And um, it works so well with these old Appalachian instruments. Um, I've always felt that. I mean, as you know, and the world is slowly learning more and more the banjos from Africa, and so... There's a reason why like low end sounds really good with the banjo and we didn't have that for a while in American string band music, which is fine. It went its own direction, but um, you know, it's basically a drum with strings on it. that these very American uh, styles that you grew up with started to bend and transform a bit as you saw music from very far away places. And you guys have really seen the world in a way that most bands, even who travel uh, a lot, have not. And I'm curious if there's a certain place that really started to inform um, your music that really Mm. stuck with you. That's a good question. Um, Well, we, I mean, there's so many places that have informed our music and each band member probably has a different part of that. Um, The banjo in particular, yeah, I mean, as we started playing it outside of our sort of family sphere of old time music and, and just getting a little more comfortable with it, we just started merging it into a more like riffy sort of um um, I won't say African style but like something that would be complementary with drums so kind of just letting it um break out of the 4-4 and just uh be a little more circular sounding if that makes sense and then we've yeah I mean we've traveled so many places and they they're all part of the story uh Leah and I are Scotch-Irish amongst other things so we've studied some Gaelic stuff the Irish fiddle tunes are huge She's a fluent Spanish speaker, and so she studied the boleros um, of Central and South America, and that's been huge in her guitar style. Um, I'm just shouting everyone out because Rising Appalachia is so much more than just me. Biko, our drummer, is uh, 
quite quite well trained in West African percussion styles, and then recently has picked up ngoni and kora, which are the um, the harps over there. And David Brown, our bass player and guitar player, is super into like DJ. He was a vinyl DJ, you know, vinyl spinner back in the day. And he's also an amazing Appalachian finger picking guitar player. And so his whole brain is always fusing. And he's helped us fuse a lot of the sort of traditional and then bass hip hop kind of old school trip hop sounds just with his own knowledge of vinyl and, and those old songs. So. And then Aruna, our amazing musician, is from Burkina Faso and plays Ngoni and Balafone. And our fiddler, Duncan Wickle, is pretty much an all-around badass at all instruments <laughs> and all styles. So I think, you know, collectively our travels have just reinforced our understanding that we all come from a certain tradition or a certain style that we're drawn to more than others. But there's a universal voice in music and it's it's kind of borderless if that makes sense you know you don't have to speak the language necessarily it's just there's a there's kind of a magic out there to that so we yeah we've really enjoyed those moments back in the day when we used to be able to travel and and learn from other people you know was was there a particularly harrowing moment in some of in one of those foreign countries <laughs> a harrowing moment. travel moment. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I was traveling in India with my sister in southern India, and I was on a 24-hour train ride. They have an amazing train system there. And um, got I was had a sleeper bunk, because <laughs> you do, and I got woke up in the middle of the night by a very angry train conductor who was yelling at me in Hindi and finally I kind of you know very sleepily expressed it I didn't speak Hindi and he was like you're in the wrong seat you're on the seat and anyway I had apparently bought my exact seat and exact day on that train for the wrong month which was oh shit I was not aware of you know and it was someone else's seat and so he proceeded to turn on all the lights and try to kick me off the train in the middle of nowhere, India, at night as a single woman. And I was like, look, I mean, in broken English and broken Hindi, obviously just trying to communicate to him, like, I didn't do this on purpose and I wasn't a stowaway. And that please don't pick, like, kick me off in the middle of the night. And he softened eventually and then just, like, let me sit next to him on his little bench for the remaining part of the trip, which was right next to the toilets, which was not a pleasant experience. Uh, but, you know, with no food and, you know, he was kind of mean mugging me the whole time. And it was my first time traveling around India by myself. And I was just like, all right. Worst case scenario probably would have been to be kicked out at in the you know middle of nowhere at four in the morning. So I'll be thankful for what I have. And it ended up being fine. But one of those travel experiences where you think, uh, you know, nobody knows me here. And if something happens, I, I don't have too many people who have my back. Uh, and that's humbling. That's a humbling experience. Yeah, how did you decide to travel by yourself? My my father traveled the world, and uh, he always told us so amazing, so many amazing stories. Our mother was also a flight attendant, and so we just we grew up with like 
the stories from our parents of travel being as valuable as education, pursuing education in their opinion. And I'm so thankful for that because it is really true. You know, if you travel in a humble way and you listen and you learn and, you know, live lightly where you go, it's such an education to the world and to yourself. And, um, yeah, I knew that I wanted to do that more than sit in a classroom. (laughs) I didn't actually ever finish my college degree because we started Rising Appalachia and started touring, but also because... The world was much more interesting to me than, you know, textbooks and this sort of prescribed uh, educational system. And, I mean, hey, anyone who's traveled, it's like in 24 hours you learn, your brain is exhausted because you're taking in so much and learning so much. So, And your connection with your sister, you know, musically kind of started when she was living in Mexico, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's a little bit older than myself, and um, she was traveling in, in Mexico and Central America and uh, had a banjo with her. And then we ended up meeting up in Puerto Rico, which was my first trip kind of as like a fresh out of high school <laughs> young woman with her. We went to Puerto Rico, actually, and I had one of those little, you know those dancing men that you bounce on a stick that is a southern tradition? They're called lumberjacks, or there's a couple other names for them. You just put a like board under your butt, and then you hit it, and there's a little man, the carved out of wood that like flings its arms and legs. Anyway, it's an Appalachian thing. Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah. I had one of those, and she had a banjo, and we traveled around Puerto Rico, and we had such an incredible time. It's still one of my favorite trips because a people had never seen a banjo or heard Appalachian music, but b like traditional Puerto Rican music was like Cuban music. I mean, it was just so incredible and rich and so many uh, relationships and opportunities just to like meet people and learn from them and hear their music came from us having a banjo and, you know, being willing to share a couple songs with people. And it completely opened our eyes to what uh, one of the gifts of music is, which is relationship, you know, I think in the States, we've like gotten a little obsessed with ego, uh, you know, and like this is our name and what we want to say. But, you know, so much of music is relationship and how you're relating to the people around you or, or the community. And um, that was just such a strong realization and memory for us. And we, we ended up staying there for three months and playing so much music and and kind of sharing and and cross-pollinating like Appalachian Puerto Rican music and it was just incredible so we realized what how much more we could offer with the songs from our family uh when traveling and kind of that's really what kicked Rising Appalachia off in a lot of ways what did your dad do for a living my dad was an artist his whole life he didn't have too many like official jobs (laughs) our mom actually supported our family being a flight attendant which is wild Uh, but our dad is a sculptor and a welder and a painter and you know a studio artist and he also taught off and on he taught at a few colleges and at Georgia Tech and but he was very committed to uh, he was sort of our full-time parent because our mom flew for Delta for so long and he's a visual artist. So she was she was on the road. Yeah, she was on the road. Yeah, she did flights to Europe. So yeah, maybe you guys were used to 
the idea from a very young age that, you know, the gender roles didn't have to be fixed at all. For certain. Yeah, our mom. I mean, our mom, our grandmother on all sides. There's a lot of really strong women in our family, as there are in all families. But in our immediate family, yeah, our father was the stay-at-home parent. And he did an amazing job at it. He loved it, you know, and was really artistic and kind of just taught us all sorts of techniques and painting and music and all that. And our mom worked and that that worked out fine. I mean, it was hard. I'm sure it had it hard, it's hard moments for our mother who had to be gone from us. But it's good to see those those standards flipped on their head as we're experiencing now. Like there there doesn't need to be a standard <laughs> Right. We all get too comfortable in our boxes, and it's it's really just it's a disservice. So we should, you know, think wider. When people listen to your music, you know, it's almost hard to differentiate uh, who's singing at what point. You or your sister, you're so connected in your sort of sonic threads, you know, being intertwined as it yeah. should be. And there's something magical about sibling harmony but I'm curious if you could tell us what makes your sister's songs or her uh, process different than yours oh yeah Leah is the is the harmony queen what we call her so she finds amazing harmonies um, so I'll write a lot of songs and and then just give them to her to sort of do her complimentary singing on and then her songwriting is super different from mine. She's very stream of consciousness. You know, she wrote Indigo Dance, which I kind of added some lyrics to, but she writes more this free form, uh, you know, she's put spoken word into like medicine and some of our more popular songs. Like she's got that watery, like fluid style. And then some of the songs I've written are just a little bit more arranged, if that makes sense. Or like I wrote Resilient or Harmonize, you know, they have, they're, they're like, God, I mean, how do I even explain that? They're just, they're almost more of like a full statement start to finish, you know, whereas hers, I think leaves room for a lot of different interpretation. Um, I like really edit, you know, myself a lot. I, I work on songs until I'm, I really like each word that is in them. Um, and, and then we co-write, of course, a lot of things. So we leave space for one another to add verses. And, and that's, that's been really helpful to have, you know, to let each of us write songs, but then also to kind of leave space in one another's songs for the other person to have their voice. That's worked well for us, but... It's it's a pretty democratic, democratic process for us. Yeah, I mean that song "Medicine," um, which is on what out wider circles, um, you know, it seems to harness this knowledge of the ages. You know, like it's trying to distill all these things that have um, filtered into you and your consciousness, and um, you know, it begins with that line. You know, the wise wise man says told me that you know says yeah. that rushing is violence so your silence when it is root you know is violence when it's rooted in compliance i mean that's like such a needed statement right now right yeah, now. i know once again that, i'm like god we should make bumper stickers of all these things yeah <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, that one is more universal. That song I wrote for, you know, we we have some medicinal medicine teachers, herbal medicine teachers, like Rosemary Gladstar, who's very well known in the States um, as a an herbal teacher. And we met her a long time ago, and she helped us so much on the road, just know how to balance our bodies with, you know, echinacea and adaptogens and, I mean, all these different plants that you could bring on the road with you as a way to stay healthy and, you know, just just supplement your body with some good things. And then also the consciousness of just the natural world that she contains. She's an elder and she's just so incredible. And so that song was written in inspiration of her and it contains a lot of other messages and, and wider wider messages than just her as a person but it definitely directly came from her just having such a beautiful hand in our project from from the very beginning it's a beautiful song thanks wise men say that rushing is violence and so is your silence when it's rooted in compliance to stand firm Loving defiance, make Archer alliance, give voice to the fire. Move people to the beat of the wind, gather yourself and begin to dance the song until it ends. We are winners, champions of the light, forming in numbers and might. Keep the truth close in sight and woman, medicine man. Walk in with grace, I know your face and I trust your hand. You guys, you guys seem like you probably eat very healthy, even when you're traveling. But when you're on tour, what is your guilty pleasure vice? <laughs> um, what is my guilt? I like whiskey. That's probably my guilty pleasure vice. Uh, I don't like drink tons of it, but as a singer. I'm sure you know, or other singers know, yeah, like a nice whiskey at during a show, to be totally honest, in between songs is really nice on the vocal cords. You just soothe and calm. And so that's probably my guilty pleasure on the road. Um, we also drink a lot of yerba mate, like uh, in gourds, which is not a guilty pleasure. It's a healthy pleasure, but we love mate. And yeah, mostly we did our best to eat well and eat local and try to get, you know, mom and pop's food in us when we could and avoid the mega stores and have healthy stuff on our rider. And it's hard, you know, it's hard on the road to eat well. You definitely end up slipping, but I wouldn't say that we ever stopped at any sort of McDonald's or anything. That's not really our thing. Did you actually do a Canadian tour on a sailboat? Did I read that right? Yeah. Yeah, for three weeks we did a coastal island BC sailboat tour. It was incredible. That was one of our favorite, definitely our favorite, I mean it's hard to pick, but one of the favorite tours we've ever been on because we were on the boats, which was amazing, but then also the shows were on people's farms spread out between the islands. So, uh, And then they would do farm-to-table dinners before the show for the for the community and that was just you know that's that's honestly the direction that we want to go in more which i think due to covid is fine um 
of just these these sorts of like alternative more balanced holistic ways of sharing our music which that was a really good example it was hard work you know we set up all the sound and schlepped everything onto the boats and off the boats and like got not a lot of sleep and sailed which was of course beautiful but also a lot of work um but we got to visit communities and eat their food and like stay there for a handful of days and see small parts of Canada um without having to get in a car and use a bunch of gas so yeah it was it was it was a treat for sure lots of memories from that one all right last thing I'll ask you and then we'll we'll get a song going here um it's another very unfair question that I like to ask show on the road episode guests you could start your own festival anywhere in the world where would it be and who would the first five artists be that you would book who are dead or alive <laughs> nice great question um, I would start it where would I start it we played this incredible festival on the island of Stromboli, which is off the coast of Italy, um, that has a freaking volcano on it. So we played a circus festival down there years ago. And definitely hasn't been topped as far as location. So the Isle of Stromboli, five artists, is that how many I get? Sure. Um, I would pick Ibei. Amazing Cuban sister duo, Current. I would pick my friend. Oh, who God, this is. I would pick Climbing Poetry, who are some friends of ours. I would pick. Um, James, oh no, I would pick Hozier. I'm a big Hozier fan. I would pick Martin Hayes, the fiddle player from Ireland. Wow. And probably Tumani Diabate from Mali. I mean, that would be a very diverse, sweet festival. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> be kind of all over the place, but that's that's you know pretty much how my music style is. Is it Stromboli like like where the food Stromboli comes from? I guess so. I'm not totally sure though because I don't think we ate that there, but it's spelled the same at least, and it's. I I mean I'm a big fan of islands. I like the island thing for uh, for an experience or a festival because there's a certain amount of isolation and and uh, you know that people can't just get there easily. So we've done a few of those, like the British Columbia one, and it's it's just it's really cool to be surrounded by water. Hey, we did a a kind of a mean spirited, but I thought it was hilarious. April Fool's okay. joke. Uh, a couple years ago. I like to do a fake Dust Bowl revival Instagram and Facebook April Fool's joke every year saying that something cool is happening that obviously is not happening. <laughs> but like, yeah. I post, I made this poster of a festival that we were going to throw on like a boat on like a tropical island <laughs> and that we were like taking our first reservations for the festival starting next week or something. 
and people were pretty excited and then really pissed off. <laughs> yeah, they were like, what? You're not? Doing that? <laughs> That's hilarious. And then my, si- my sister, of course, called it out. She was like, yeah, isn't that boat in like that picture you put in the poster from like Thailand? Or, like, are you, do- <laughs> are you doing this in, in like Thailand? I'm like, it's not actually happening. It's April Fool's. <laughs> That's great. But in my utopian future, maybe it'll happen. That would happen. I think you guys would fit really good in the bill. Yeah, we are comfortable on boats. We are not quite sailors yet, but we can help. We can be first mates. What song would you like to play us out with? I'm going to play Harmonize. It's from our newer album, Ley Lines, and uh, it just brings me a lot of joy to sing. So Well, uh, I'm going to sing it for you. I wish we could get your sister on here, too, but, you know. Tell her, tell her that... Uh, We've yet to figure out how to sing at the same yeah. time over the airwaves, you know. She's in, she's uh, quarantined in Costa Rica and has not been able to get back to the States. Which is, she's safe and fine, but it's been quite a trip for us. Yeah, it's a long time. Has she been family. there since March? Yeah, she went for a couple weeks and never came back. <laughs> I mean, there's worse places you could be stuck, I suppose. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, she's in a good place. We keep in touch. Like, she's she's on a farm. It's all good. But it's just the feeling of, you know, not being able to come back is quite odd. And that will change eventually. But they're, uh, yeah, they've shut their stuff down, as we all have. All right. Hopefully, I can remember the song goes. All right, are you ready? Do it. This song called Harmonize. <clears throat> I'm just going to take my earplugs out while I Sorry. play this. So.
There you have it, Chloe Smith of Rising Appalachia. You can go to risingappalachia.com for their music, and uh, they actually have a new single called Stand Like an Oak, which uh, I lied earlier. I said Pulse was their newest single. You know, they're always creating, even though they're separated by time and space. If you go to the bluegrasssituation.com right now, you can see that back in April, there was a video premiere of that song, Stand Like an Oak. Uh, in their words, they said, I wrote this song for a loved one going through the wave, an arc of depression and anxiety, someone whom I wanted to sing a reminder to to find her roots and footing when the wind blows strong. We could all use that right now. And uh, the message they have on their website... Uh, I think is kind of a message that many of us bands would like to give to our fans. Uh, we are currently, like so many people, they say, on hold. May art carry us all through hard times. May we learn from these times and reemerge stronger. Stay safe, stay healthy, and practice resilience. As always, you can help your favorite out-of-work bands. Uh, you can help them stay resilient by buying their vinyl, getting new t-shirts from them, uh, donating to their Venmo and their PayPal. Uh, Dust Bowl Revival, my band, has been making some new videos of late. We have a really cool quarantine video of Enemy, a single that I love from our record, Is It You, Is It Me? And we're going to start doing this thing called Dust Bowl Delivery. And in the next few months, since all of our tour dates are canceled, you can actually send us an email, go on our website, dustbowlrevival.com, and set up a private little mini concert on your front lawn, on your driveway, uh, with some friends, uh, not too many of them, but we can keep it safe and we can keep it fun and we can bring live music to you that way anywhere near L.A. So check that out, dustbowlrevival.com. The show on the road is hosted and written by me, Zach Lupiton, and this is the first week ever where I attempted to edit the whole thing myself. Not sure if I did a great job, but you can blame me if there's any blips and bloops. And you can go to the bluegrasssituation.com to see the wonderful podcasts they're putting out. We are on the BGS Podcast Network. And please go to iTunes, subscribe, leave us a review, and tell your friends. As always, I'm glad you're here, and we'll see you on the trail. <laughs>